The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. Well, I was really moved to come here, very much so after everything that happened here. Um, and I was really happy when Pat uh, and I communicated about that and, and that the dates, especially with the book fair, so we call it? Festival. Festival. Uh, was just now, and I looked at my calendar and I said, you know, I actually could do it. I flew in from California yesterday, and I'm leaving <coughs> Thursday morning for New York, and then Friday for my next adventure. So it just fit, and I was like so happy, really, to be here. And what I was thinking about, um, talking about, so as not to replicate what I'll say tomorrow night. Should tomorrow night happen? Um, you never know. Um, I, I was telling someone in the car that I was teaching in Washington, D.C. once, and there was like an inch of snow projected. And then they started making announcements about carpooling. And I said, I'm from New England. We don't carpool when there's an inch of snow. But sure enough, like, and then it wasn't an inch, it was like 12 inches and things were intense. So we'll just see how it all goes. Um, my mind sort of went back to what years ago was on my first uh, real website and they called it Sharon's favorite sutta or passage from the Buddha. Uh, and it is actually still, I think, my favorite passage from the Buddha where um, the Buddha said abandon or, or let go of that which is unskillful. You can abandon the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If it would lead to anything but, if it's something like, I think it was phrased in the negative, if it would lead to more sorrow and Tribulation, I would not ask you to do it, but because it leads to happiness and fulfillment, I ask you to do it. And then he went on to say, cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If it were to lead to more sorrow and suffering, I would not ask you to do it, but because it only leads to more happiness and fulfillment, then I say, cultivate the good. So there were a few things that I really loved about that. One, of course, is if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So I considered that a personal promise from the Buddha that, yes, you can do this. And then it's always been interesting for me to look at that kind of schema about life. Instead of seeing things, say, forces in our own minds or uh, whatever as good and bad or right and wrong, seeing that there are those which lead to suffering. They lead to our own suffering. They lead to causing suffering for others. And then there are forces which lead to freedom, to connection, to clarity, to love, to joy. And it's a very different way of looking at our own experience and, and looking at life. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If it took away from your suffering, from your happiness, and led to more suffering, I would not ask you to do it. And that also brings me to the consideration that our own happiness 
is considered a positive thing. Not something selfish and self-centered and, you know, kind of uh, pleased with oneself, like lying on the couch thinking, wow, I have it all, you know, something like that. Um, but understanding that our own happiness is like a resource. When I was here, I think, much earlier book that I wrote called Real Happiness, um, and it was interesting because I don't choose the titles of my books, by and large. And uh, I didn't choose that one either. And as I had said at the time when I was here, that book actually had a different title originally. It was called Why Meditate? And then I got an advanced copy of my friend Matthew Ricard's forthcoming book, and it was called Why Meditate? And his book was coming out in September. Mine was coming out the following January. So there was this big scramble to find another title. And the publisher came out with real happiness. And part of it, I was like, that's great. You know, that's what we actually want. And part of me was saying, I don't think so. You know, like, I'm going to get into trouble for that. And sure enough, the very first interview I had about the book, the interviewer said to me, are you trying to tell me that the kind of happiness I experience when I have a lovely meal with my wife isn't real? And I said, of course I think it's real. And if anything, if we paid more attention to it and we're more appreciative and we're more grateful, we'd be happier. And I said, and we also know it changes, it disappears. And what about the night you don't like your meal that much? And what I thought but did not say was, what about the night you don't like your wife all that much? <laughs> You know, so isn't there another kind of happiness that can sustain us, can be f there for us, even when circumstances are not meeting our desires, even when we're disappointed, even when we're watching something fade away, even when things are really difficult. And in some ways this is said to match the actual symbolic quest of the Buddha himself, where in effect he had some very big questions to ask about life. And they were things like, what does it mean to be born in this human body, to be so fragile and dependent, vulnerable on other, to others, and to grow up, to grow old, to get sick, to die, whether we want that or not? And is there a way to have a kind of happiness that it'll, will be sustaining and onward leading, even as the body does its thing. And what does it mean to have a human mind with the kind of emotional chaos that we tend to have? We wake up in the morning and you're afraid and then you're happy and then you're sad and then you're guilty and then you're frightened and then you're happy again. And just like, it doesn't even take a whole morning, right? <laughs> just this cascade of changing feelings. And without the ability to insist that, they, that movement stop, Right? We can affect conditions and conditioning and all kinds of things, but we don't seem to have the ability to command. I've grieved long enough, or I'll never be afraid again, or I'll never fall asleep meditating again. It's like not going to be that way. And so is there a kind of happiness that can be there for us anyway? Even as the mind on that level is going through well, those kind of changes. And it said that whatever answers or resolutions the Buddha came to, he came to 
through the power of his own awareness, and so can we, whatever our own questions are about life and about happiness and so on. One of the things I've also uh, really been taken with around the idea of skillful and unskillful is that, you know, what leads to suffering, what leads to freedom for us. In the end, that's our own investigation. You know, because we are taught so many things and fed so many myths and even lies about where strength is, how alone we are, what happiness is. Will love strengthen us or weaken us, as an example? Will vengefulness strengthen us or weaken us, is another example. I, I had this funny experience not too long ago where I kind of semi-ruined this young woman's life for a while. Um, because I believe we live in a time also where we are taught that if we can only put other people down enough, if we can only demean them enough, we'll feel better about ourselves. So uh, interestingly enough, it's also a time of like rampant loneliness. I forget the actual statistic, but it's a phenomenal statistic. This is just the U.S. that the study was done of how many people describe themselves as lonely, whether they're in a relationship or not. And it's a big number. You know, and I think about the kind of contempt we're taught to hold others in. So I was co-teaching this six-day seminar, and um, the first night I was speaking about this, and I, I said, I talked about that rather odd phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog world. <clears throat> and that's what we're taught, right? Don't count on anyone, don't let anyone take advantage of you, you've got to like even if you crush them, it doesn't matter. You've got to do what you have to do to you know, get ahead and take care of yourself. It's just a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And so this young woman came up to the microphone. She was really shocked. And she said, wow, I've always thought the phrase was, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, like D-O-G-G-Y, D-O-G, like puppies and meadows, you know. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And, she said, I never knew the phrase was, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. That's horrible. <laughs> so we went on for six days, and it was the last morning of the retreat, and she came up to the microphone right at uh, the end, and she said, I've decided I'm not going to live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I'm going to live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. <laughs> you know, so what are we taught, though? And... And one of the almost like miracles of mindfulness is that we have the chance to look directly at our own experience with honesty and uh, with presence and with balance, you know, not with a like hidden agenda, like I've got to get rid of that feeling, and, you know, but to really open to what our experience is. And on the basis of that much more direct connection, see for ourselves. What leads to more suffering? What leads to more freedom? And then we have the choice. When we see that which we know, at least the last 50,000 times it came up, led to more suffering, we have the opportunity to remind ourselves, you know what, Let's see if you can let that go. And we see that which, you know, sometimes like very tentative, burgeoning sense of compassion, of caring, of of wishing well towards someone, ourselves or someone else. And we see it kind of come alive, trembling, and we think, oh, look at that. I was taught that 
that kind of love or compassion makes you weak or sentimental or foolish or whatever. I don't have to buy into that. You know, I can nurture this. I can strengthen this. I can take some risks and see what happens as I allow myself to care. Things like that. So it's really, it's, it's a very empowering thing. And that also makes me think of uh, the work of this friend of mine, uh, Barbara Fredrickson, who's a researcher at the University of North Carolina. And she researches positive states. I don't like to call them positive emotions because I don't think of them all as emotions. But positive states like loving kindness, compassion, equanimity or peace, um, generosity, gratitude, and so on. And she has this theory which I've really enjoyed thinking about called uh, the Fredrickson uh, broaden and build theories. So her thesis is that if you strengthen these positive states, the first effect they will, it will have will be to broaden your perspective, broaden your consciousness. It's like expansiveness, vastness, openness, space. Suddenly we can breathe. Suddenly we see options in front of us where everything just felt sh shut down and frozen before. It's like, oh, right? And I really, I felt that because I really, I really thought about those times when we're like locked into the opposite of those states. I don't mean just like a, you know, a flash of something, but when it has seized us and we're really, really locked into anger, fear, grasping, something like that. If you think about, for example, the last time you were really, really angry at yourself and just bring it back for a moment, it's not a time when we think, you know what, I said that really stupid thing that morning, but I did five great things the same morning. It's like those five great things, they're gone. And all that's left is that stupid thing and how that's all we ever do. You know, and so one can consider that anger, that first flash of anger, uh, a wake-up call, a signal to look for change, all kinds of things, and it's certainly energizing. But that lockdown, that tunnel vision, means that our ongoing relationship to ourselves or someone else, that our choice of action will be very limited because we're imprisoned by the confines of of just the nature of that tunnel vision. That's just the, um, it's kind of the characteristic of being lost in a state of anger. And again, you know, there, there may be very positive things about the feeling in some way, but when we're lost in it, it is consequential in terms of how it affects us and the choices we then make. Or think about the last time you were really, really afraid it too is not a time where we see many options. It's not like our minds say, oh, you know what? If it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way. It's not gonna work out. Or even strong grasping or desire, it gives us this incredible tunnel vision. So these days, I like to talk about the fact that I just bought a new car. My car lives in Barry, Massachusetts, wherever I am. And my car, which I was extremely fond of, was getting pretty old and 
it, I mean, it still had a cassette player in it. And um, I really loved that car, but every time I went home to Barry and started driving, it would break down somewhere. So that was clear, clearly a signal. So first of all, it was quite problematic for me to get a new car. I didn't know how to drive a new car. I didn't know how to start a car without a key. Um, I still think if you want to know what's going on behind you, you turn your head. You know, I'm like, what do you mean you look at the screen? <laughs> you know, so uh, a poor friend who was trying to help me get a car, he suffered. But um, finally, 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 I chose a car. And um, then the salesman said to me, I need your top two color choices. And I am positive I can get you your first choice because we look all up and down the eastern seaboard and it's just like, don't worry about it. But just in case, you know, just a pro forma, I need a second choice. So my first choice was what they were calling mulberry, which is kind of your sweater. It's like a burgundy color. Um, it's the color of Tibetan Buddhist monks robes. Uh, so I had a lot of nice associations with it. I really wanted that mulberry car. And the second choice was like a kind of electric blue. Um, for those of you who are familiar with Tibetan iconography, it's the color of the medicine Buddha. It's like this electric blue. Lapis, really, is what it is. And I, in ordinary circumstances, really love that color, but I wanted the mulberry. Absolutely. And so the day finally came when the car was delivered, and guess what? It was blue. And I couldn't believe it, like sort of watching my mind, which is always fun, you know, when you can have enough space. It's like, I thought, it's so odd, I'm so upset, and I love that color. In any other circumstance, I'd be so happy to choose something that color, but he told me he could get my first choice. My first choice was mulberry. It's like, oh no. And then uh, I realized that for the first two weeks or so, of owning that car, if you'd asked me what color it was, I would have said, not Mulberry. <laughs> like, I named a new color. It was like, but right, that's the nature of grasping. It's gotta be only this, and only this will ever satisfy me. And look at what we forget. Oh, I actually love that color, Never mind. You know? And so we see that when we are lost in certain states, that's the consequence, that's the suffering, in that they, they limit us so much, and they close us down and cause such, such contraction. So it makes a lot of sense to me what Barbara said about certain states broadening, opening, expanding our whole world, and something that I always found very eerie, and I kept confirming because I couldn't quite believe it, was that as people did things like practice these positive state, strengthen them and deepen them, their peripheral vision would actually get better. I thought, whoa, that's really weird. And pretty interesting too, right? Good before a driver's exam too to think about. Um, and then the second part of her theory is build. We broaden and build through the cultivation of positive states. So what are we building? We're building a sense of inner resource a sense of inner abundance, or at least sufficiency, a sense of wholeness. And this too is not considered selfish. This is the kind of happiness I was talking about earlier. 
Because if we feel exhausted, depleted, overcome, broken inside, impoverished inside, there's not an awful lot in us to draw on in order to care about anybody else or take care of anybody else or serve anybody else or try to make a change in this world or even just to listen. You know what it's like in real terms when you are just, you've had it. You feel like there's nothing left inside you and somebody comes and starts telling you their really genuinely sad story and you're like, oh, go away. Please, you know, I just can't. And that is so different from when we feel like we're coming from a place of some resource, right? Presence, wholeness, balance within ourselves, some energy. Same incident, same confrontation, whatever it is, we just can meet it differently. So, and this too, it's really, you know, it's not considered an unfortunate self-indulgence. It's essential. In uh, Buddhist teaching, when they talk about generosity, they talk about material generosity, and that is often examined because it's, it, it's representative of what we need in order to cultivate non-material generosity or generosity of the spirit, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, interest, presence, right? They're all kind of acts of, of generosity. And so it's said in Buddhist teaching that the best kind of generosity comes from some sense of inner abundance or at least inner sufficiency. And that's why somebody might have maybe a great amount materially by any external measure, but not at all have the inner feeling they even have enough. And it's just very hard in that circumstance to give or to offer. You might, but it's coming from a different place. Maybe obligation or, you know, whatever. It's not that kind of free flow of one's energy. Whereas if there's a greater sense of sufficiency than there is, it's almost like the flow that is natural or inevitable as uh, our energy moves out and includes and so on. So it's not a wrong thing to be thinking about that sense of resource and how we can cultivate it. We do that in our lives anyway. We're all kind of practicing something. And in fact, I had this really interesting experience when I, I did... A, as part of a program for about four years through this place called the Garrison Institute where we brought tools of yoga and meditation and so on to people who were uh, frontline workers in domestic violence shelters. And we would begin each program, um, you know, programs included both retreats and meetings uh, outside of retreats. And then that cycle would end and we'd start a new one. So. We'd begin each one by asking people, and you can do this now as a kind of thought experiment, um, to take a piece of paper and in the first column to write down the things that they found most stressful about work, because this is a very work-oriented program, but you could just say life, right? What are, you, what are you finding most stressful in your life? Sometimes that was really interesting examination. It was quite surprising to people too because 
since it was work-oriented, you know, maybe it wasn't the kind of fearsome suffering they were confronting every day. It was having, you know, bad communication with coworkers or something like that, which was really weighing on them each day. So what's the most stressful thing in your work or in your life? The second column we ask people to write down, well, what do you do for a break? What do you do for a sense of replenishment? What do you do for relief? What do you do to lift your spirits? What do you do to connect to something other than the immediate circumstance, something bigger? And you know, people didn't have to disclose what they were writing or now what you're thinking. Um, but that was a really interesting exercise too. In four years of doing the programs, I would say every single person wrote down listening to music, uh, who spoke about what they wrote down, um, although it was all different kinds of music, and um, you know, people might write down, I go out into nature a lot, or I have a deep religious faith, or um, I drink a lot, actually, to try to get away. And then in the third column, we ask people to look back at that second column. Like, what do you do to, to get a break? And write down how they felt about what they'd written down. So each item was, was kind of an interesting reflection. Like, maybe people wrote down, I go out into nature. And then you think, well, you know, I really haven't done that in about seven years. Maybe I should do a little more of that. Or, you know, I stopped doing that. I didn't really need to stop. Maybe I should pick that up again. And if you did write down something like I drink a lot, you know, people were saying, maybe this needs to stop. You know, this really needs to change. I need to find some new tools. And so uh, it was really interesting to see what each person was, was seeing about themselves. Right? We want that sense of relief. We want that sense of connecting to something bigger, where's it gonna come from? Just habit? Or from the willingness to investigate and to stretch and to explore and, and so on. And so there are a lot of choices there, there as well. I remember somebody who, who did read her paper, she said um, that to get that sense of relief and resilience and so on, she watched a tremendous amount of American Idol and I just started laughing. I said, oh, I only saw it once. I was at a friend's house and they kind of made me watch it. And for me, it was like watching continuous rejection. I just felt so much worse at the end of the show. So I said, I guess that won't work for me, you know. So it's not like there's one prescription, you know, for what we might do. But we want to move out of that exhausted, shattered, overcome state because in the end, it does not serve anybody, right? And so we can romanticize it a lot, and I think we also do that. Um, you know, the, probably the most uh, cliched way of describing it these days is, um, you know, when you're on a flight and the uh, flight attendant makes the safety announcements and and they say, you know, the oxygen mass descend, put your own on first before you try to help anybody else. And I was talking to a writer friend of mine and I said, I don't think I could use that. Like every one of my teaching colleagues uses it because it's a great example. Every one of them uses it and every one of my teaching colleagues who writes 
they write about it? I said, I just can't even use it anymore. And so my friend who I was talking to said, oh, you know, I was just on a flight. And they made that announcement. And the person sitting in the seat next to me said, I could never do that. I could never put my own oxygen mask on first. So I said to her, maybe I can use it. It's like provocative and difficult and edgy and put your own mask on first. I was just recently on a flight, of course. Um, it was my flight uh, to California, not my flight back from California. But I was you know, sitting next to a man, a total stranger, and we immediately kind of signaled, I want to talk to you. Uh, you know, so we're both sitting in our seats doing our thing and and then something happened in the plane right above us. It sounded like skidding or it was some sound that shouldn't have been there. And it was right above us. Kind of, that was weird. You know, what was that? Like something hit the plane and bounced off or I don't know, it was weird. And then it happened again. And we were fairly composed. Then it happened a third time and I like jumped. I went, eh. And then we sort of looked at each other and I thought, if I'm fainting and you're fainting, please put your mask on first. You know, like, cause can you imagine sitting next to that original woman that my friend told me about and you're passing out and you need her help and she's refusing to put her mask on first because some principle and you really need her to feel okay to help you. That's actually more the reality of things that uh, we need to look for the things and we should look for the things that bring us resilience and upliftment and, and uh, that sense of that kind of happiness of sufficiency because that's what will empower us and kind of energize us through all the things that, that we go through as we're moving forward in life. It's really not selfish. Cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. And so we really, we do examine the states we go through and the effect of various things and choices. And um, it's a very creative process. It's not, it doesn't work, of course, if it's a very judgmental, hypercritical process. Uh, but it's a very joyous, creative process to, to understand that, oh, we can have options. You know, we can see our minds flipping out because the car is mulberry and we can see that and also laugh rather than feel, oh no, you know, I've been <clears throat> meditating for 150 years and I'm still upset when I get a color that I actually really like. <laughs> so how do we develop that sense of inner sufficiency, that sense of wholeness? Each of us probably does have our own answer for what we tend to do in life. And then there's just the, the exploration of what seem to be some universal principles. If, we're, if we pay attention more to others, we'll feel more connected. And that sense of connection, you know how like in a lot of clinical analyses these days of different diseases and they talk about social connection as being a strong healing factor. Um, Interestingly, social connection doesn't necessarily mean lots of people. It's not the number, it's the sense of connection. 
right? And so we can cultivate that. And the way we cultivate that is not through pretending or forcing. We cultivate that through paying attention differently. If you're in conversation with someone, you're not really listening and you're not really looking at them and you're just thinking about the email you need to write or something like that, it's not going to be a very connected sense. And I always tend to use that example about meeting a stranger. You know, you meet a stranger at a party, you're in some situation and, and they start talking to you and you're really not there. And I was using it in just that way not too long ago and somebody said, well, you know, you can say the same thing about long-term relationships, whether they're romantic relationships or friendships or whatever. The ways we start thinking, I know all about you. No more surprises left. I don't have to hear you talk. I know how that joke ends, you know, like I've heard this before. Um, and we just separate and we close down and we get more and more removed rather than pay, paying full attention. And so it's attention that's really the key to having some greater sense of, of connection, which will fill us. It will give us that sense of greater and greater abundance, turning toward the good, um, the joy of generosity, of gratitude of loving kindness, which doesn't mean you like everybody, it doesn't even mean you like anybody, but it's acknowledging that our lives are connected. Feeling the possibility of not creating such a strong sense of separation or almost like um, privilege and marginalization. In a simple way, I was driving in a car with a friend of mine at one point and we were stuck in this incredible, hideous, terrible traffic and complaining about it all the while. And then at one point my friend said, oh, we're the traffic too, you know. <laughs> and it was like so weird. It was like, oh. You know, we've been driving along as though we own the road. This is ours, other people are in our way, you know, go away. What are you doing out here at this hour? Right? As though we were in the center of the universe. But what happens when you actually remind yourself, well, we're the traffic too? That sense of centrality kind of drops out. And then here we are together. This is the truth. We are the traffic too. Other people were complaining about us, I'm sure as bitterly as we were complaining about them. So it's just that sense of recognition that, oh yes, for all we hold these templates of self and other and us and them, which can be useful, they're just constructs, right? And if we hold them rigidly, we're lost because they don't reflect the truth of how things are, which is we're the traffic too. That we live in an interconnected universe where we don't own the road but we are all counting on one another just to get through a day. And that's actually how things are. So uh, there's every possibility of seeing the suffering of certain states, you know, grasping hatred, fear, jealousy, uh, that kind of contempt for others, no matter what we're taught, sort of seeing for ourselves. And if we find those states of suffering and contraction and separation and they're not onward leading, we can learn 
to let go. However often they arise, it doesn't matter. We can learn to let go and so not be so dominated by them. And we can set out to at least experiment to cultivate the good. To see if, you know, of course, loving kindness is my basic example. And I know you're in the middle of a Brahmavihara exploration. So, um, you know, is it really as like sniveling and sentimental and kind of meek and saccharine as we may have been taught? I don't think so, really. But many of us have been taught that. I'm fond these days of talking about my friend Dan Harris. Somebody just brought him up to me. Um, who's an ABC news anchor, and he has, his first book was called 10% Happier. He has another book that just came out, I forget what it's called, and he has this app also called 10% Happier, which I'm on, and Joseph Goldstein's on, a bunch of people. But um, in 10% Happier, Dan tells the story of, uh, he was a news anchor, he was really kind of messed up, he'd been a war correspondent, came back, started taking drugs, um, he had a panic attack on the air, which is very interesting to watch because uh, as he gave book talks, it kind of followed him. I saw it like a million times. Um, and he ended up, uh, it was suggested to him that he learn to meditate, which he thought was like the stupidest thing in the world. But then he started looking at the science and the research and he felt somewhat reassured and then someone suggested he go to an intensive 10-day retreat, which he thought was really stupid. But he went, and to his tremendous chagrin, the kind of biggest experience he had during that retreat was doing loving-kindness meditation. So he told me he used to read my book, Loving Kindness, uh, my first book, on the New York City subway, and would hide the cover. Because <laughs> he was so embarrassed to be seen reading a book called Loving Kindness. First, I thought he meant he put his fingers over the lettering. But then I took a look at the book cover, and those are like big letters. And I realized, no, he hides the cover. It's like pornography or something. And, and I thought, isn't that interesting? That embarrasses us. You know, like we might sit on that subway and be reading a book called Pulverize Them Now, or, you know, <laughs> War Every Minute, or, you know, don't let them get you, you know, or whatever. And you're like, and we'd feel fine, you know, like, but loving kindness, oh no, I shouldn't, I should hide that. And so um, we always used to tease each other, you know, because we're friends. And, uh, and then when his book came out, uh, he posted a loving kindness meditation on abcnews.com. And then he was on, it doesn't even exist anymore, I don't think, he was on this thing called HuffPost Live, where the Huffington Post had live interviews with people. And to prepare for the interview with him, they had certain people, they asked certain people to make um, recordings, which they would play for Dan on, on the air, so to speak. And they would get his immediate reaction to the recording. So for some reason, I thought it was a roast. You know, like nobody said that, but, you know, as it turned out, I was the only one sort of mocking him and everyone else was like, you know, best person in the world, and like dignified and fantastic, which he is great, you know, but, and I said, oh, Dan, remember the days when you used to be embarrassed reading Loving Kindness on the subway and 
Imagine my delight when I saw you posted a loving kindness meditation all on your own, you know. And he laughed when they showed him that and he said um, something like, yeah, my wife thanks Sharon Salzberg every single day of our lives because I'm so much less of a jerk, <laughs> which is the way he talks, you know. But it's the experience of it that leads us to that. It's so easy to just be taken in by what we've been told. Where does strength lie? Where does happiness lie? What good is our happiness anyway? There's so much pain in this world. How dare we be happy? Um, everything we've been told. And what an amazing thing to be able to just kind of peel that away and, and see for ourselves where we want to put our life's energy. So I'm going to stop now so we have some time for questions or comments, but it would be helpful if we could pass the microphone for that. Is that okay? Who has a question? Maybe nobody. Then we'll have to sit again. <laughs> um, thank you for coming and and uh, I was I was working at your talk this afternoon and so I was sort of intimidated about asking a question but I and I you may have started to answer it but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'd love to hear you elaborate on it so I've not been doing this meditation for very, very long, maybe about a year, maybe two. Um, and I don't do, I haven't done a retreat and all those, you know, like graduate school meditation kind of things. I just come on Tuesday nights and I'm in a little um, book group too. But I, so at the end, of meditating, we often say, may our meditation benefit uh, all sentient beings. And I'm not sure I get why my sitting still and being quiet, other than like developing resiliency, and that helps everybody, which you've just been saying. But can you elaborate on how my meditating is supposed to help other beings? Thanks. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, some of this is really like poetry, you know, it's not like a literal, um, you know, when we say may all beings be happy, is that ever going to happen? Probably not. As people, somebody always says, well, there's predator and prey, and if the predator's happy, the prey is dead. If the prey is happy, the predator's hungry. You know, that is true, but some of it is like poetry in that it evokes a certain sensibility, and it's a reminder to us that, what you know, the quote at the end, that our inner work could never really be just for ourselves alone, but is about this sense of connection with, with all of life. Does it affect somebody energetically or, you know, possibly. I mean, someone's got to put out some better energy in this world, right? Um, and it certainly affects our own choices and our own actions as we do this. It also reminds me what I just said of um, another book title of mine where... Uh, Many years ago, it was my second book, so right after Love and Kindness, 
I read a book that was called The Heart is Wide as the World. And uh, that wasn't the original title either. Um, the publisher had come up with some title, which I can't even remember, but I didn't much like. And I was sitting and one of my colleagues was giving the talk that night. And she used the phrase, a heart as wide as the world. And I thought, that's it. That's the book I want. So I called my long-suffering publisher at the time. And I said, I want to change the title. And they'd already, we were, you know, well into the process and they'd already designed a cover for the other title. And uh, they were not really pleased, but finally they gave in to me and they said, okay. So a heart as wide as the world, you know, of course it implies like openness, expansiveness, like a vista, something like that. So they started frantically designing covers to send me, and this was like send in the mail days. And uh, they sent me this, this uh, sketch or, or something of a reproduction of, a, of some Van Gogh painting, I don't remember which one, but it was like this big, big open yellow sky. And down at the bottom there were like a few crumbled huts. And I took a look at it and I thought it was like a picture of devastation, you know? And I said to a friend, this should be the cover of The Grapes of Wrath or something like that. But I showed it to other people and I showed it to one friend, I remember, and she looked at it and she said, this is a world that could use some love. And of course that wasn't the cover, but that phrase has stayed with me for all these years. This is a world that could use some love. And here we are, right? And so, in effect, that's also what we're doing in, in that moment of dedication. Uh, we're reminding ourselves of what we really care about. I don't know what happened to the microphone. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Um, a group of us uh, here at a, a KM group, which we affectionately call the uh, BBC for the Buddhist Book Club, we had the, um, the fun of reading your book uh, the last few, last few months and appreciated all the great conversation that you uh, engendered. Um, this question is really kind of an extension of the prior one, is in the traditional meta practice when we um, offer loving kindness to, to difficult people and then out beyond to all beings, does it imply um, action in any way or to act on that feeling or is it just a, a wish? And particularly now that you're in Charlottesville, I thought you might be interested in answering that question. Um, I think it, it does not mandate any action. And I think that's an important point for people to, I found that's an important point for people to reflect on. Because if we feel uh, the development of compassion or the opening of our hearts means that we have to do A, B, and C, then we're sunk. You know, and people ask that very question. Does that mean I have to go visit him in jail? Was one example. Does that mean I have to go see my mother who is pretty dangerous? You know, does that mean that uh, I have to give them all that money again? 
um, does that mean I have to let them move back in? You know, and so we hear those questions over and over and over again. And really, it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, because the, the loving kindness we develop is an inner state of freedom of the heart around inclusivity, around care, around recognition that our lives have something to do with one another. Um, and we know there's such a thing as tough love, there's such a thing as fierce compassion, right? And it's almost like they're two different aspects of an action. It's like, um, you know, we talk a lot in uh, the Buddhist tradition or many Eastern traditions about the motivation behind an action, the intention behind an action as being a very, very important part of the action. It's like, if I reach down uh, for this cup and handed it to somebody, all anybody sees is my hand moving down, picking up an object and moving it forward. But the question is, what's the heart space that's generating that, you know, maybe I'm offering it to you because I like you and I want you to have it, or maybe I see you have a water bottle and I think, well, hey, you know, like if I give you the cup, maybe you'll give me the water bottle, or maybe I don't like you and I think, well, you know, you won't like this tea. Here, have a cup. You know, so it's like the same smile and the same gesture, but it's coming from a totally different place. So in the West, we tend to, you know, mock really, or just be indifferent to the force of the intention. It's like the road to hell is paved with good intentions, or what do you mean you had a good intention? You completely screwed up. But in the East, the intention is a very important part of the action because it's what will distinguish this action from this action, which looks absolutely identical on the surface. And so they say that's where the karmic seed is planted. That's where like the energy of the action is. And then we have um, the next, next aspect of an action is like the skillfulness or the unskillfulness of the execution. It means mindfulness of a bigger context. It means discernment. It means remembering lessons learned. It means um, learning from feedback. It means learning skills, things like that. So, you know, if you are supervising, for example, someone at work, it doesn't take long to realize it's not that skillful to say to them, you're an idiot, you know? Because for one thing, it's not giving them any information they would need should they choose to change. It's much more skillful to say, when you turned in the memo six weeks late, then, you know, three people couldn't go on vacation. Actions are really consequential, whatever. Um, we learn skills, and so uh, that's why there's no perfect formula. You know, the only loving action is to say yes or to do this. It, it's based on our, well, I call it our best guess in the moment. It's always contextual, um, right there in that relationship. Do you let that kid move in again? I don't know. You know, and it's, it's a kind of discernment that really needs to get developed, including having a, a wider range, I think, of options, you know, rather than being so locked into the habituated stance. And those are different. Every time we conflate them, the motivation with the skillfulness of the execution, we end up in some kind of trouble. That's like saying a loving person could only do this or do that or respond in that way. And it's it's much too limiting. 
I have a question about the blue and the burgundy. Um, I have been meditating maybe a year or maybe two. I don't know. I come here every Tuesday night, and I, I have this mind that goes a lot. So I, I sit every day, but I don't always make it. I mean, I just sometimes can't settle my mind. So I'm new at this. But anyway, and I've read a few books, some Pima Children and so on. And then, anyway, then, and then I'm thinking it'll get better. I'll get better, and I'll be able to not get hooked so easily. And then I hear you. You've written books, and you've been doing it all these years. And what you t said about the blue and the burgundy, I can so identify with that. And by the way, I do have a new car, and it's metallic blue. And that was my first choice, and I got it. But you know I'm what? I'm extremely happy for you. <laughs> I don't really think I'm any happier, actually, because there's this about it I don't like. It's too low, and just little things. But does it get better? I mean, I... Yeah. No, I mean, you said it, you said it really well originally. There's a difference between having something arise and getting hooked on it. You know, a lot of things can arise, and it's either, you know, the, the more poetic imagery in Tibetan uh, practices see the thoughts and feelings that come up like clouds moving through the sky. Or you could say, I'm watching the new car movie, you know. I'm just watching the movie. Uh, or as one of my teachers would say, it's not the thoughts that arise that are the problem, it's the glue. You know, we take things to heart. I don't want anyone to see my car. You know, it's like, it's the wrong car. I need a new car. Maybe if I'd gotten the other, if I'd gotten the Mazda instead of the Honda, it could be Mulberry. <laughs> if only I had a Mulberry car, I would never feel unhappy again. I'd have everything, you know. That's the problem. Not just the kind of scenarios. And that's why we say sometimes that uh, mindfulness is, is a matter of relationship. It's not about what's happening, it's about how we're relating to what's happening. You know, maybe sleepiness comes up and we're kind of interested in it or we're more balanced with it or restlessness comes up and we're kinder to ourselves with it. You know, we're more balanced there. Or, you know, restlessness or sleepiness come up and we freak out, like... I can't believe this is happening. This is the only thing I'll ever experience when I meditate, ever, ever, ever. You know, that's a different relationship. Uh -huh. <coughs> so last summer, um, we really suffered a huge community trauma, or at least I've kind of come to think of it as a community trauma. And there's a lot of folks in Charlottesville that um, over the course of the summer put their body on the line and um, in so many different ways um, in response to what happened last year. Um, and I think um, a lot of people are really suffering um, and their bodies still from that. And the trauma doesn't really end either. And I think there are people like myself who um, ha are, are white and um, uh, are, are suddenly aware of the trauma that people that are Jewish or people of color are suffering on a regular basis and feel kind of incensed and called to um, respond in some way. But the mm -hmm. response itself is, is continues to be a trauma and I guess 
what I'm wondering is how you hold that and do what you were speaking of um, before, of kind of filling your cup. Like, how, how do you do both of those things? Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but. I think so. Um, I'll try anyway. Um, I don't know that trauma needs to be considered a permanent state, for one thing, you know, in, it, in its meaning of like being frozen and kind of held by something. I mean, terrible, terrible things happen. A terrible thing happened here. Um, and we're affected by that, so I don't mean to say we kind of dismiss it or it, or it goes away, but sometimes it's sort of like more metabolized, you know, and used in some way. I mean, you already talked about that, you know, using it for action, using it for waking up to the conditions of, of other people. Um, and I, I specifically talked about like replenishing and all that because I know so many activists who, uh, as one said to me like a million years ago, he said, you know, I, I can't even let myself eat a banana and enjoy it. You know, and I said, really? And he said, yeah, I, I just know too much, you know. <laughs> and, and I thought, and he also was an extremely depressed person. And I thought, well, you know, and his activism was beautiful. And I thought, well, maybe you should let yourself enjoy a banana now and then, you know, and like you'd have more energy in the long run uh, to try to sustain a change. So it's, it's both. I mean, it's shocking, you know, and... Um, awful so many things really in, in our time and and yet you know I think it's it's really it's up to each person to kind of find what will help them go on in a way that uh, is productive and useful and some of that I am sure has to be a kind of um, more holistic vision so, for example, I was once speaking, uh, it was actually in D.C. at the cathedral, at the National Cathedral, and uh, the woman that was speaking before me was Zainab Salbi, who had started this organization, Women for Women International, which linked up uh, people here with women in war-torn uh, countries, and they, we would actually correspond, and, you know, they took some money off your credit card every month or whatever, but uh, she said something I found very interesting. She said that um, because she was also, when she'd come back from, say, Afghanistan, she would be fundraising for the organization. And she said she found herself telling the story of this woman in Afghanistan and the horrible things she'd been through and how terrible it was and how awful it was. And, and then she said, and I realized one day that I never said she was an attorney and she had education and she had resources and she had strengths. It's like, I had made her into this kind of only um, victim, you know, thing, object. And she said, I really didn't do service to her. And she said, I really began to consider what compassion is. And that maybe to have a more truthful view of, of the complexity of who she was and be conveying that was more to the point than just, uh, just kind of you know, instigating that same reaction over and over and over again. Or the ways we feel guilt over our own joy. And I can understand that, you know, there's a lot of suffering in this world. And, and yet, is it actually going to be the case that we will be able to hang in there and respond without 
just going under if uh, we just only, you know, have that kind of response. And so um, I'm not totally sure that, again, you know, that the exact traumatic reaction is always going to be sustained, nor should it be. I mean, I went through 9-11 in New York, basically. I was not in New York City that day, but I was on my way there, actually, because I had a class that night. It was Tuesday. Um, and when I finally got into the city, which was about a week later, I stayed for two months and taught. And uh, I feel like I lived through a lot, and I grew a lot in that period. Um, and, you know, I saw the kind of precise physiological reactions of my friends. You know, Simon would go by and they'd leap out of their seats and things like that. And, you know, I mean, that all eased, you know, as people worked. But uh, the caring and the conviction didn't go away. You know, and the, and the ability to be uh, truthful about what had happened didn't go away. So I, you know, I also feel like we live in a time where truth is hard to come by. It's not that easy. And um, if you have, say, a childhood that was full of deception of some kind or secrets or silence around certain things, it's, it's a very uh, kind of re-traumatizing experience. And so... Uh, you, you know, people have to decide for themselves what will help them kind of steer their way through rather than just kind of perpetuate those old reactions which are only suffering and, and are not onward leading. And so how much news do you look at? I don't know. You know, I made certain decisions. Um, and, you know, I am, frankly, on Twitter about 20 hours a day, so it's not that I don't know what's going on, but I don't watch it on television. I decided, you know what, I can't do that right now. Uh, there's something else I need to be doing in my life every day, like being here, you know? And so if I was, like, all freaked out, because I just, it wouldn't help. Um, but I am on Twitter all the time, so you can always find me there. It's at Sharon Salzberg. Um, and, uh, and it's really me, too. Uh, you know, the movement toward balance um, is not a selfish movement. It really isn't. And it's hard to believe that. Maybe I'll just close with this one other story from my time with the domestic violence shelter workers which we, uh, I think I've actually told this story here before, but um, when we did this program, it started with frontline workers and then the directors and supervisors of shelters uh, said they wanted a program too. And so we did a kind of parallel program for them. And they came up with a phrase on their own uh, to describe what they wanted to help institute in the workplace. So this is a very intense workplace, remember. And that was, their phrase was a culture of wellness. They wanted to help establish a culture of wellness. And a culture might mean your body and mind, it might mean your desk, it might mean your team, it might mean your classroom, whatever. The scope of that is, and 
And they each had different suggestions about what they would do or try to do to help establish a culture of wellness. Interestingly, everybody talked about some physical space at the workplace where people could just like chill and relax. Um, some people talked about like growing a rooftop garden or whatever. And this one woman who was running a shelter said, I've decided that uh, in order to help establish a culture of wellness, <coughs> I'm gonna start taking a lunch break. And everybody in the room who did not work at a shelter was aghast. We all said, you don't take a lunch break? Isn't it in your contract? And she said, oh, it's in my contract, but there's never enough time. There's so much crises and, you know, craziness, and everybody needs me, and there's so much pressure, and there's so much suffering. But then she said, I realize now that I can't go on unless I do something to try to shift this balance. So I'm going to take a lunch break. And because we were meeting in New York City in between retreats, we got to kind of hear about her progress. So the first time she uh, came back, she said it didn't work. She said, I closed the door, but somebody crouched down and looked through the keyhole. And they saw that I was in there, so I didn't get a lunch break. And then the second time, maybe three weeks later, she came back and she said, it worked. She said, I closed the door and I turned off the lights. And I got a break. And my assumption about that whole journey was that very possibly the hardest part of all was realizing she deserved it, that she needed it, and that it was okay to do. Because in fact, it doesn't blow up our to-do list, and it doesn't mean we give in, and it doesn't mean we're apathetic, but we are finding other sources of strength and, and support in, in order to really go on. Okay, so I'm gonna thank you. Uh, Thank you, with Pat. Thank you, Pat. I hope to um, come back sometime soon. We'll see what happens. I don't have to wait for another book, right? <laughs>